welcome to the Wellbeing Rebellion, the podcast that's changing workplace cultures for good. We're your hosts, Ngazi Wella and Obehi Alafoje. Let's get this rebellion started. In this episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion, I'm joined by Philip Dyer, founder of Healthy Leaders, a British company dedicated to inspiring entrepreneurs and organizational leaders to take control of their health and well-being to promote improved personal and team performance by providing practical know-how and guidance to demystify mental and physical well-being, which results in increased levels of confidence, self-awareness, and enhanced performance. Philip has a business career which has spanned over 30 years and a broad range of sectors. Whatever the business sector, his focus has always been people, identifying the barriers to personal growth and development and how these impact on organizational aspirations and ambition. Whilst Philip's experience extends to international businesses, his passion lies with owner-managed businesses. Philip was the first entrepreneur in residence at the University of Central Lancashire and held an honorary teaching fellow position at Lancaster University Management School and is a regular presenter on the topic of well-being. Having seen too many negative examples of the impact of running your own business, excessive stress, lack of time, his emphasis is on self-care to improve personal well-being and quality of life. We say at Aurora as well, but if you feel good, you perform better be that at home or at work. In response to an overwhelming need, Philip founded Healthy Leaders in 2018, focusing on well-being coaching to increase productivity and performance, followed by Healthy Leaders Academy in 2021, which is an on-demand proposition accessible to multiple users in an organization online. On a personal note, he's a former black belt in karate and British karate champion in 1977, Making physical well-being a lifestyle choice, his last competitive endeavours were in the international sport of indoor rowing, achieving runner-up in the European Championships in January 2019, and a credible fifth place in the World Championships in California in February 2019. Very impressive. As Phil puts it so well, as years have gone by, we've all witnessed a decline in physical and mental well-being of UK's population of working adults, be that owner or employee. The statistics are shocking, with problems hiding in plain sight, from weight gain, which is often a precursor to diabetes, to stress and anxiety. It is almost impossible to perform at your very best with these daily pressures bearing down on you. So on today's episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion, I talk to Phil about mental fitness and well-being i.e. resilience, that dreaded word, and the hanging question, is it all in my mind? Let's get started. Thank you so much for joining us, Phil. Can I call you Phil, or do you prefer Philip? Well, my my preference is Philip. I'll answer to Stuart. Why? (laughs) Because sometimes people call me Stuart. I have no idea why. (laughs) I, 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 okay. Which would you prefer? Philip. All right, Philip. But I feel like if you see, this is why I didn't call you Philip, is because I feel it's very difficult to say Philip without trying to do a slightly offensive impression of our dearly beloved yet departed queen. 
Philip, I can't help it. I'm so tempted. <laughs> well, that, well that, that's you doing impressions, not it's just answering I my know. name, that's all. Oh, okay. I'll try not to call you Philip. Thank you so much for joining us on the Wellbeing Rebellion, Philip. Um, welcome. Right. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me, Ngozi. Well, I couldn't help but think that my audience here uh, would absolutely love to hear more about your story, your journey into coaching, leadership, personal development that you've done and your focus on resilience because it is such a key buzzword that we hear a lot of these days and you've got a very refreshing take on it. So it's going to be fascinating. So I've got some questions that I've thought of, but really I just want to, I just want to chat with you because you are a fascinating individual and I've had the pleasure of speaking with you before, but for the benefit of those who don't know you, you've had an interesting path to, to this current, let's call it career evolution that you've got. Um, Manifestation. Manifestation. (laughs) I like that manifestation. And it's, it's not been easy. I mean, your, your story, your story is fascinating. Uh, it wasn't all positive experiences that got you to where you are today. In fact, you've been through some really tough times. So can you share with us a bit about how you came to be here, why you decided to build your own business and how it all came about? Ah, it's a, that's a big a big question that oh, you're asking there. It's a big question to start with. If you could do that in 30 with. seconds as well. <laughs> I'll do, do the potted version. A, a good starting point perhaps would be the fact that back in the day I used to be an electronics engineer. And I had a, a really, really strong desire to become an electronics engineer, but I didn't perform particularly well at school. Uh, you needed qualifications in maths and physics to normally go on to an apprenticeship and, and learn the skills. So I, I actually developed my qualifications when I was in my early 20s, and I, I serviced my ambition of becoming an electronics engineer by getting a job at the uh, Lancashire Constabulary headquarters back in 1980, something like that, 1981. And I thought I'd, I'd, I'd arrived. I was so excited. Mm. And, uh, and I discovered once I buried my head into a piece of equipment to repair it, I detested it. But it's like, it's like the, what your expectation is. You know that expression, yeah. be careful what you wish for. I was just thinking that. <laughs> you know, so it's what I wanted, but I, I hadn't actually experienced it. So I didn't really know if... At the time, that's what I was going to get. And so I found myself dragging myself into work, not being perhaps the best employee on the planet, and particularly being in the constabulary, which has got, um, let's call it a mil- more of a military disciplinary background than anywhere else. And I was at odds with it all the time. And eventually I found that the best way forward w- would be to be self-employed. And, mm. and that was the goal. So about 19... 19- 84, I decided I wanted to be doing my own thing. And by 1986, I'd set up my first business with a business partner. Still delving into electronics and doing things of that type. But I must admit, I enjoyed it more because I was self-determined. And and that was really the, the primary goal was to be self-determined. I, I didn't like being told what to do. And particularly if I disagreed with the style that it was actually delivered and back in the day, it was very much a, an autocratic command and control environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't have that language then, but I just knew that it didn't feel right when I was on the receiving end of it. 
And this is now 2023. And in my role, I still encounter autocratic, top-down command and control environments that need to change to modernize. But in truth, it's just the way that people actually learn to manage businesses. But that's, mm. that's how I ended up doing what I do now. And I'd probably be on here for three or four hours explaining all of the minutiae between that journey. But it, it's, been, it's been a checkered, different journey to get to this point. And, and some of that journey has led to some difficult, challenging times. And here on the Wellbeing Rebellion, uh, the clues in the name, we do talk about <laughs> mental well-being. So have you ever struggled yourself personally with your mental health? Uh, and if so, how did you get through it? Well, I, I would say I think it's very considerate of you to, to actually say that I've had challenging times and the implication there is that I've come out of challenging times. And the truth is we've all got our stories. Everybody has challenges that take place. Perhaps the, fir- the first time I'd encountered a deep sense of uh, distress psychologically was when my mother died, uh, which mm-hmm. was in 2000. And I'd be the first one to say that my, ex- my personal expectation was that um, I was quite sanguine about death and it's, it's, it's part of life, it's what part of the journey and, and I was convinced I'd read things about it. So obviously I knew about it because I'd read things about it. When my mother died, the wheels dropped off. I completely lost the plot and it was, it was at the busiest time in my, my business at that moment in time, big things were happening and I wasn't coping very well at all. And it, it sort of like it was, it was a double whammy in a way, in the sense that my mother died and that was affecting me. But what was also affecting me was my acceptance of my inability to cope with what I was doing and what was mm. happening to me. And that was a very complex time in my life. I eventually worked my way through it, but it, it took nearly a year to get my head around uh, the, the circumstances and taught me a big lesson about it's one thing saying it, it's another thing living through it. Mm. And you touch on something that's really, I think, not spoken about enough. It's that it, sometimes it's not just the challenge that presents itself, whether it's the death of a loved one, a job loss or a divorce or even just a difficult boss. It's your acceptance of your inability to deal or handle that challenge. Sometimes we just keep doing that. If I just keep grinning and bearing it, if I just keep on, then it will go. And that is the way danger lies in my experience and probably yours. It's the ability to to actually accept that we need help, one, and then to go and find it, two, is... It's the first step in, in, in getting through these kinds of mental or emotional challenges. Well, it's perhaps here I'll, what I'll do is mention the, the, the dreaded R word, resilience. Yeah. <laughs> because um, I, know, I know exactly what I did when my mother died was I grabbed hold initially of male stereotypes. So that was uh, stiff upper lip, I can cope, why am I being like this? I'm being weak. So, so in effect, I picked up a hammer, a metaphorical hammer, was hitting myself in the head with it. I didn't have the tools to actually cope with the situation. I didn't seek help. I didn't get any guidance from anybody. I was mm. struggling through the process. Now, uh, in contrast, uh, unfortunately, back in 2009, my brother uh, passed. 
And I had at the time uh, contact with a fantastic HR specialist. Her name was Sarah. And she was brilliant. Uh, she she was very helpful in terms of how I reconciled myself with his passing. And I know we're talking about, uh, I don't want to sound mawkish because I'm talking about the death of my mother, de- death of my brother. There are extreme situations where everybody faces death. It's something that's common mm-hmm. to everybody. And it helped immensely that I had the tools available, not only a professional to talk to, but also in between the time of my mother passing and my brother, I'd learned about that process of grieving certain acceptances that have to be dealt with and also my my lifestyle and and approach. So building your toolbox is not just a case of building it and putting tools in it, but building it, putting tools in it and then getting them out and using them when you need them. Mm -hmm. But you can't can't access a toolbox unless you put tools in it. Mm -hmm. And that's that piece where you've got to go and seek advice and guidance. And there's such a reticence, that re- resistance to actually going and doing it. I'm okay. I can. I'm fine. Life's good for me, but it won't be. Something will happen. Something derails you, and if you've not prepared for it, you will come a cropper generally. Mm. And I think there is this expectation that we have. I was going to say particularly in the West, but I think it's true everywhere. An expectation that because these are things that happen to everybody we should that my one of my least favorite words in the english language we should just know how to get over it deal with it without having to seek expert guidance i mean they never did in the 60s we didn't have all these therapists and coaches and whatnot therefore i should be just able to manage it particularly those of us who are seen to be good with people good with emotions good with feelings we should just know how to deal with this stuff there's a there's a view almost that that resilience and the, the capacity to cope with things is is innate, mm. uh, and following that stereotypical view of it, it's men are strong, women are weak, um, men don't cry, women cry. So there's a bias that starts to take place that is actually not based on any foundation of of sense whatsoever. And But one thing I would disagree with you is that it, back in the 60s, 50s, 40s, back in the day, there, there was an infrastructure to support people. And that infrastructure is actually the older people around you in your life, mature people. They, they, they had the wisdom and guidance. And people are less inclined to approach older people these days for guidance. So it's like Google or chat G, G, GP or whatever it's called, that, that will tell me what to do. And it won't. It's, it's people that you need to connect to to actually guide you. But, but going, going back to that, that particular point, that, that you, you end up with a, a situation where people feel that they've, they've got everything that they need, but really that there's, there's a, a reticence, that, resi- that resistance to actually reach out and seek help. As, as you're aware, I work with a, and have worked with a number of, of business owners, and it, sometimes you think it's almost insane the, the amount of pressure that they put themselves under when they'll say they should have the answers, that w- lovely word that you like, yeah. should. I should have the answers that I should know. I said, how should you know this? Are you, you business Google? You know everything about there is about business and about how people tick. It's just not mm. possible. Hmm. You know, even Alexander the Great, who conquered a good third of the planet, had Aristotle as his mentor and guide. Aristotle had a mentor and guide. 
and anybody that's been anybody has had a mentor and guide but yet business people invariably set off on this journey and they don't have guidance you don't need the same guide every time you need to change the guide you need to change the expertise of the guide but you need a guide and a mentor to help you navigate your way through your program of development i think in this culture that we have in the uk it's this concept of having a Sherpa, a business Sherpa, or a coach, or a guide, or someone who is external to the organization, preferably, who can help you to identify ways forward and troubleshoot problems. And it, it's quite new, but in the US, it's quite a developed More industry. commonplace. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's more commonplace. But, but I think it, again, I know I'm using that, that phrase stereotype. I think it does come down to the stereotype that you should know and mm. it, it's your journey and maybe it's weak to reach out and get assistance. But if you look at anything where anybody's going to perform at the top, if someone's going to perform at a level of excellence, what they would normally do, if you're a sports person, I don't know of anybody that's performed at gold medal mm. standard and they've just done it on their coach. own. Yeah. They've, got a, they've got a team of people wrapped around them to get this output. And good business is just the same. Exactly the same. Village. It does. Mm. That's, a, that's a great way of describing it. it it's, it's, it's essential, but it's not, it doesn't become um, apparent sometimes until it's too late. If you're facing, it's a, it's a bit like going to a doctor. I wouldn't say it's necessarily it's too late going to a doctor, but everybody goes to a doctor when they're sick. You know, I, I've, my, my favorite new word at the moment is prehab. Prehab. Okay, what's prehab? I can guess. So instead of rehabilitation, which is when you've had an injury and you've had a problem, prehab is to make sure that you avoid having an injury and you avoid having a problem. Mm. So prehabilitation. And it, it's it's a great way. So you're setting about making sure that the issue doesn't happen in the first place. Well, these these things, we think of them as new, but it's not. Prevention is better than cure. That's something I was I was told an adage from when I was a kid that was around for when from when my parents were kids. There's a reason why prevention is better than cure. I uh, mean, hundred percent. Yeah, it's more, and it's true in terms of uh, your employees' well-being as it is in terms of your physical health and safety. You know, it, it's just much better to, to stop people from having incidents in the first place than to treat them after and help them to recovery, which then begs the next question about mental fitness, toughness, resilience, if you want to use that word, and well-being. Is it, is it a question of mind over matter? Or, or is it? Is there something more to us being able to have a sound mental health, sound mental well-being, than just what we do in our mind? Is there is there something that makes some people better able to cope than others? It, I mean, again, it's a good question. What we have is a situation where the vast majority of people, I find, have difficulty in reframing a situation. Okay. And it's a learned skill. So, you know, you want to go out because the sun's shining and you go out and it starts raining, you get annoyed. If you reframe it, it's just it's just the weather. It doesn't really matter. There's, you have no control over it, but you could get agitated. 
just this morning, I think I was uh, saying to you earlier that I'd been to uh, Nutsford. Mm. And on the drive to Nutsford, there was a car absolutely rammed up my back. So, so close. There was nothing between us. And my response was, this guy is wanting to go somewhere very fast and he's under pressure. So the best thing I can do is get out of his way so he can go forward. It went in front of me and much to my amazement and not surprise, ran up the back of the other car and just stayed there. And we were in the same place for the next six miles. Mm. It didn't make any difference to his journey, this tension, this pressure. And so it's, it's a fair guess to say his cortisol level was going through the roof. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fair guess to say his adrenaline would be pumping like mad. Neither of them have any value to him while he's sitting in a car and not being able to go where he wants to go. And if I had an opportunity to speak to the person, a bloke, and say, really need to just calm it down and accept that you're in traffic. So it's that skill to reframe it. You're in traffic, you can't control the traffic, but you can control yourself. Well, that takes practice. It's, it's part of the resilience package that you need to learn how to reframe things. And it affects your mental health. And the inability to reframe causes a problem. Mm. And I find that most people have a huge amount of difficulty reframing a situation so that they can see it in a calmer way. So how do you go about developing that skill? Because you're right, it is. It's a skill um, that is learned and can be strengthened like a muscle with practice. But yeah. how, how can you recommend um, we go about doing it if we identify with the impatient driver? Well, it, it, it's, it's standing back and actually looking at your lifestyle. What I tend to find is people are so busy, things are so fast, they're doing so many things, that once you get into that frame of mind, you start to put more things on your plate rather than taking more things off your plate. And it makes it virtually impossible to, to slide in a new way of thinking. And the best, the best approach is to actually pull somebody back and have a calm moment. But that is a real challenge because they're going at 100 miles an hour already. Mm. So the, the battle is, first of all, having the ability to have space so that you can be curious. Why am I doing that? What's causing this? And you start challenging your behavior. But when you're really busy, it's the last thing that you want. The last thing somebody wants is somebody saying, have you read this book? Mm -hmm. I don't have mm -hmm. time to read a book. I don't have time to read that. I don't have time to watch this TED Talk. 20 minutes, it's a 20 minute TED Talk. Aren't there, have you got any three minute sound bites I can watch? Everything's so fast. Mm. But if you make space, you can be more efficient and more effective in what you do without the same pressure. But it does take practice. It's quite uh, counterintuitive, isn't it? It is. The, the, one of the things that, that tickles me is uh, I was talking to somebody this morning, when I, when I was in Nutsford talking to somebody this morning, about outliers. And the outliers of society are seemingly quite seductive. They're very attractive. And outliers I, I describe as uh, maybe famous business gurus, that are mm. billionaires or multimillionaires or famous politicians. So like Maggie Thatcher is an example. People cite Maggie Thatcher for the fact that uh, ignoring some of the political things that she did, but she used to yeah. sleep for three or four hours a day. And I said, do you think that's a good idea? So because I think she died with dementia. It was definitely a negative thing if it was ever true. I think fa famously um, Napoleon Bonaparte was quoted to say, how, how many hours do you sleep? I think, he, I think he said something, 
seven for a man, eight for a woman, nine for a fool. Mm-hmm. That that the sleeping long was bad, mm-hmm. but it's not. It affects your mental health. It causes major problems with your diet and weight gain, cortisol uh, ramping up, all manner of different problems. But when I talk about sleep, to me, I have no time for that. I'm too busy. I've got things to do. Yeah, I won't lie, Philip. I fall into that camp of sleep, sleep. Why sleep? I'll sleep when I'm dead. And um, my husband is the opposite. He can sleep for 12 hours if he's allowed, which I occasionally let him do. And he will respond with something like, okay. You occasionally let him do, I like that. Yeah, I'm not looking after these damn kids on my own, that's for sure. (laughs) But um, he might respond to the I'll sleep when I'm dead quip with don't sleep and you'll be dead a lot sooner. And I do get it, but sometimes you just feel the pressure to be up and at them and doing more, 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 more. So how do we... Well, that, that's what, what you've just said is the, is, is the, the, the problem mm-hmm. is reframing this concept of more, 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 more. More isn't, isn't good. More is just more. You do more badly, you do yeah. less well. And it's a bit like um, I met somebody a couple of days ago that said that they're really good at multitasking. I said, you do know that you're telling a lie. That I don't know anybody that can multitask. It's a fallacy. Controversial. You're talking to a woman here. Yeah, well, it, but you're right. Yes, what what we do is we do many things not too well. Yeah, and it seems to satisfy the the, uh, the urge to do more, but it's not productive. And you mm. see that a lot uh, within yeah, organisations. So the environment is such that the pressure is is put to bear on top of people to do more, can do this at the same time as doing that, and that seems to tick a box. But there's no output from that, no quality mm. output. You know, Usain, Usain Bolt is uh, is renowned for 100 metres and 200 metres. He doesn't do marathons. Yeah. There's a, there's a reason for that because he's no good at doing a marathon and he can't train for a marathon and train for a 100-metre sprint. It doesn't work. So why should you be an IT expert and trying to resolve things on an Excel spreadsheet when you really don't like it and it doesn't do very well for you when there's somebody else that does that in their sleep? Literally, mm. yeah. So multitasking is mad. So Obi really is an advocate for that. She always says, "Stay in your lane." But there are times when we haven't got a choice, where we say it, we are tasked with a role. As a, I'll give you an example. When you are promoted to a position of leadership because of your track record in an organization. You've done very, very well as the IT expert. And the next place for you to go is the head of the IT department. Department, yeah. Where you actually don't do any more tech work. Your job is to manage the people and the processes. But you weren't particularly good at that. You were good at the technical stuff. Yeah. So how would you suggest then that that individual stay in their lane there I, I would posit is that the word posit I pose I suggest yeah, yeah. that they need to do one of two things as a company you need to think about well who are we promoting and what have we got people in the right roles where they feel happy and fulfilled and as have we created pathways where they can continue to challenge themselves and accelerate their career but without having to step out of their zone of genius and then as an individual 
are you happy where you are with what you're doing? You pose a good question in in the sense that uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the phrase, the Peter Principle. No. Have you you not come across that? The the Peter Principle um, was, I can't remember the doctor, the professor or whatever that came up with it. But basically the Peter Principle is where someone's promoted to the highest level of incompetence. Okay, I've heard that. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. that's the Peter Principle. So someone does a really good job and they get promoted. Then they do a really good job at that level to get promoted and then they don't do a particularly good job at that level, and they stay there. Yeah. And that's the Peter principle. Uh, what happens is that happens, unfortunately, a lot with middle management. Mm-hmm. So people are promoted into leadership roles. Uh, they're trying to maintain a small team or even a large team, mm-hmm. but they have not been tooled up with the, the tools and skills mm-hmm. necessary, the competencies for that role. Like I said, the great IT, but not necessarily with people. I'll cite an example. There's a great book called The Richer Way by Julian Richer, so the, the founder of Richer Sounds. Mm. And in the book, and I know that they do this for fact, if somebody within the organisation wants to become a manager, the pathways are there for them to become a manager and they get promoted. But if they don't perform as a manager, they get demoted. Mm-hmm. I don't know of any other organisation where people have been demoted I've worked with corporates where someone gets to the highest level of incompetence and gets promoted sideways. Yeah, that happens a lot. Yeah, they don't go down. They just go up and stay up and go sideways and and fester and cause frustration. The the junior staff look at this senior member of the team and think he's incompetent or she's incompetent. The senior staff look at the, the that member of the team and think that they're incompetent. They're, they're in a dreadful place. And it's not, you don't know until you get there, a bit like me doing electronics. Once I arrived, I just thought, this is, I'm not an electronics engineer. I shouldn't be able to be here. You know, there's other things that are for me and I should have come out of it. But mm. who wants to admit that they're not good at something? Mm. You know, once they've arrived, it's just that almost ego drives them to stay in the role or salary, mm. start living right. to a salary that they shouldn't be really be living on. Mm. So what is one piece of advice that you give to my audience about how, why it's important that they create this culture of well-being where people are able to thrive, not just survive, not just stay festering in a particular role. Why does it matter? If, if we're looking at it in, in pure financial terms, so let's talk about productivity and performance. If you want to maximize productivity and performance of your team, it's not about KPIs. So key performance indicators are interesting to measure, which is no bad thing. But if it's, if it's the only way to drive somebody's performance, we're going to have a problem. We have to look at people in, a, in the round as being human, not machines. Mm. Mm. If you're thinking about somebody's well-being, it's going to contribute to the bottom line it definitely improves productivity and performance because people that are happier, people that are well, perform better. Now, an example, whenever I I work with an organisation, I I always do a survey before I start. So I survey the senior team, a set of questions around mental health, physical health and nutrition and culture and survey the wider team, exactly the same set of questions. And it's always revealing. So you look, one organization where there was uh, 250 people, 25% had chronic health conditions. So that could vary from irritable bowel mm-hmm. through to type 2 diabetes. 
Now, what's the chances that you've got all of that unlocked potential? Somebody's so let's take IBS. Someone's got irritable bowel syndrome, and they're going to the toilet regularly. And you just think, well, what's that got to do with me? Well, they don't concentrate on the job very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the question is, why have they got irritable bowel syndrome? Is it because of stress? Is it because of the diet that they eat? It's going to be associated with something. It's not genetic. Mm. Can it? Can we help? So that's the question. If you offer, are we? Are you willing to get some assistance and guidance, and you help them to to improve their condition, not just that they can manage it, but maybe reverse it? How much increased productivity do you think you get from that person? A lot. 25% of, the, of, the, of that team with chronic conditions. Uh, one HR person had said to me in that particular organization, it's not our job to interfere with their lives. Yeah. But you interfere with their life every day when you put them under pressure to perform. So why can't we do, interfere with their life in a positive way and work on their physical and mental well-being, mm-hmm. which includes asking them what have they got in the drawer when they've got six cans of Red Bull, a, a load of Mars bars and protein bars in the in the drawer to eat. It's not going to do anybody any good. Slump. You could almost, I've never done it, but you could almost measure the loss of productivity around about two, three o'clock in the afternoon as people go into a slump because they've been having too much sugar. Mm. There's, what's, what's more to say? You know, it, it's very hard to actually have a key indicator, a metric in terms of financial performance when you're talking about well-being, but it's yeah. there. Yeah. Well, uh, the World Economic Forum thinks that m- common mental disorders is going to cost us $16 trillion globally by the year 2030. So somebody's done the calculations. Boffin's much cleverer than you and I, but... It is there. Taking it down to an uh, to an individual organizational level may be tricky, but there are ways. And if you want to know the ways, contact me at Aurora. Contact Phil. We can show you some ways. But uh, it does it does bring up a couple of interesting points. The first one was that traditionally we are used to having a sort of hands off approach to people's well being. It's not supposed to be our business as business to care about someone's mental health or their emotional state. We should only care about what they're doing in the hours that they work. But the reality is, if we've learned nothing from the pandemic, then we should have learned that life is not something where you can compartmentalize, is it, Philip? No. You, you can't say, right, well, now I'm work, Philip. And I will do work and I will not be impacted by anything that is going on outside of the work bubble. Of course not. You are impacted. So if you as an organization are saying, okay, my responsibility, my remit is only the four walls, whether they be virtual or physical, of this office, your remit is still that person as an individual. Regardless of it. Yeah. Regardless of whether it's the work or their personal lives. And if you want to increase their productivity, if you want to increase their efficiency and effectiveness in the workplace, you're going to have to engage with them as an individual human, like you said, a human being. Yeah, it's a human being. It's the whole person that comes to work. I can recall a situation where an organization had a team member that wasn't performing particularly well and mm. they wanted me to speak to the person. 
Uh, she'd been with the company for a number of years. I spoke to her and then slowly but surely she started to explain to what her circumstances were. In work, she, she had the potential to be very competent and, and had that um, history of being competent and effective at what she did. Unfortunately, her mother had dementia. She was the primary mm. carer. She was looking after her in the mornings and in the evenings, and she was wrecked. Yeah. Have, you, has you, have you told anybody? No. Why? why? Because I, I don't think they're interested. And so it was affecting her work, and mm-hmm. the, only, on, the only metric that the work had was her productivity is not as good. She's not, not performing as well. I said, there's a why connected to that. Always. There's a why, why. you know, so, yeah, find out and and then, and help. And once they actually turned it around and saw it in a different way, and suddenly there's this realisation that actually what's going on in the outside is affecting her on the inside at work. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you can't, I look at the, 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 when someone says to me that you do organisational culture, I said, yeah, but let's think about, I think about the organisation I think about the family culture and I think think about the social culture. And those are three specific environments that influence the behaviour of an individual. And mm-hmm. at any one time, somebody could have the perfect storm, stressed at work, stressed at home, stressed with the family. Mm-hmm. And when that's going on, they're really in conflict. Mm-hmm. And and it does happen. You know, so we can't we can't isolate it conveniently, like you said. You can't leave your your life at the door and just come in and and expect to deliver. It doesn't work like that. Although we think we can, um, and that does bring uh, the second point I wanted to talk about is that dreaded R word that I like, loathe. I'm not sure. Resilience. It's just. It's I brilliant. Think it's a, it, yes, but it's a word I think is misused and abused. And it can sometimes be used by organisations to put the onus on the employees to sort the problem out. The problem is that you're not strong enough, as opposed to the problem is actually we are not creating an environment that will enable you to succeed. So I, I like the word resilience. I think it's something that actually we do need to develop. Everybody needs to be able to take a level of stress and to just deal with the blows that life throws at you. However, it's not a substitute for an organization also taking responsibility for creating a culture where that is possible. But the question I have is how can we increase our personal resilience? Is there a way or is it set at birth? Like you're more resilient than me and no, no, I don't. I don't, I don't. I don't believe that it's set at birth. It, I, like I said earlier, it, it isn't innate. It's some. It's a skill that can be developed and can be improved upon as you mature and get older. Uh, so, the scars of experience generally help people to develop their uh, resilience. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, culturally, there is a leaning towards using medication as a form of resilience, a coping mechanism. So the use of antidepressants and various other products to assist alcohol. I mean, only this morning on uh, on the BBC Radio Four, I was listening that over the past twenty years, the number of deaths which have occurred due to excessive alcohol consumption have increased by eighty percent. So there's a lot of self medication with alcohol as a coping mechanism because of the stress that they're under, Mm -hmm. and we get back again to that word why. So. Why are we in an environment that is like a pressure cooker 
mm-hmm. and why am I supposed to be able to cope with this? Uh, I do sport at a, at a competitive level and have done for many decades now. And there is, it's not possible to perform like I perform in a competition every day. No, no sports person does that at all. They prepare for that. So there's a peak and then you come down. There's organizations that expect to drive people up to a level of performance and stay up here all the time. Mm. And that, that's just not sustainable. It just isn't. So somebody in a room has said, we can save money by losing two members of the team in this area. We can make more money. But the, the long-term impact is that you burn out the ones that you've got left instead of actually thinking about their long-term potential. So you burn the team out. The best rowers back in the, in the days of the, of the Vikings weren't the ones that were slaves that were being whipped. It was the ones that were working as a team because they went at a pace that worked together, not, not because they were thrashed to make it happen, because they wanted to make it happen. That's a big difference. Hmm. It, it's awful to see people coming into the work environment and all they ever feel is the, the burst of adrenaline because all they know they're going to face is a stressful environment. Doesn't, it's not sustainable. Thinking of getting organisations to think more of the long-term sustainability of their strategies, their initiatives, is what is required. Because yeah. we, we just live in a culture that is all about more, bigger, faster now. And we, as people, expect that. So even our shareholders are expecting high returns all the time, higher, higher, more, more. And so organizations are feeling the pressure to deliver more cost savings and growth. And it isn't, it isn't necessarily what is best for the business in the long term and certainly not what's best for the employees in the short term. Well, it's the, it's the, the fast food fix. So you, you, you don't want to wait too long for... If you're, getting, if you're buying fresh food, I can remember there's a place that I used to go to near where I live, and they had to put a sign up saying, the food is prepared fresh, please be patient, because people mm. would come in and ask for something. And he said it's going to take 10 minutes or so to actually prepare it, because it's prepared fresh, instead of this fast food, you need it now. Normally, I would say, typically, fast food is not nutritious food. Fresh food is nutritious, so it's good for you. So fast is not good. When I, I used to teach martial arts, I used to teach karate. I always remember I was at Lancaster University teaching a class and, and two guys came up to me. One was German and one was from Azerbaijan. They just, the, the two things always stuck in my head. And uh, they said they were white belts, beginners. And they came up to me with a, an absolute commitment in the face and said, sensei, which means teacher, uh, we'd like to do a fast track black belt. Okay. And I said, Okay, what well, fast track black belt? I said, yeah, we'd we'd like to do a fast track. We're doing a fast track MBA, and I said, so how long's an MBA? No, I said about two years, three years, whatever the. What, how, so how long are you taking? I said one year. You're going to do an MBA in one year? I said yeah. So we'd like to do a fast track black belt while while we're here. I says, well, if you train two to three times a week for the next three years, you might get your black belt. Mm-hmm. Well, no, no, but we need to do it in twelve months. So it's not not round me you want. <laughs> You can't, you can't have it fast. It's, it's just not sustainable. And, and the value of it is diminished dramatically. Mm. So 
it, it, patience and change is required. But I'm I'm pushing it a tide here. Yeah, I I know uh, it's difficult because it seems like a, it's more of a societal thing, a 21st century problem than just one specific company. It's very hard to get us to learn to wait. Yeah. I say I say it over and over again. My, my children would say, oh, how many times have they heard dad say this? Anything worth having never comes easy. When mm. it comes easy, it goes just as fast. Yeah. Easy come, easy go. That was the expression. Yeah. So anything worth having never comes easy. If you want to be good at something, it takes time. You know, when someone says, it's taken me 15 years to be uh, uh, an overnight success. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, so... It, it takes time to achieve anything. But when it does happen quickly, it's not, it's not really worth a great deal. And it's rare. Yeah. So learn to, learn to be patient in the, in the process. And you stay around a long time. I'm, I'm taking this as personal advice. Because to, even just this morning, I was feeling a little bit impatient about how quickly we're progressing at, at Aurora and how fast the business is growing and I had had I had to have a word with myself along the lines of that to take my time there is no race there is no finish line no you just it's more about the the journey and we are so focused on the destination always as people and I find that we're always looking for the next goal the the next the next achievement the next accolade the next promotion the next but when we get there Rather than enjoying where we're getting, where we've gotten to, what we were working towards, what we were hoping for, we're looking at the next one. Yeah, you, you have to you have to build in the joy, the joy of the journey, and it all sounds quite ethereal and out there and fanciful. But the the joy is the journey, not not the destination. Hmm. And in in business, I understand there are financial targets to be achieved specific things to actually cover the overheads we've got to make sure that the the gp the gross profit is in the right place that we are achieving a net that we can reinvest in the business i understand all of these things but the generally speaking they're all delivered by people and people need to be part of that journey and if they're part of a journey they need to be enjoying the journey if you want slaves you have to go back a, a couple of hundred years what i tend to find is that the i was in london yesterday and I just saw people in traffic on Euston Street, three, three lanes of traffic virtually static one direction, three lanes of traffic virtually static in the other direction. Statistically, they're moving about the same speed as the horse and carts that they were using 100 years ago. Mm. They're not going any faster, just more frustrated in a nice car with air conditioning. So the pressure's on, the pressure's on, we've got to perform. It's, it, it's bonkers. It's not sustainable. It just isn't mm. sustainable. And mm-hmm. you could see that the, the pushback during the, the period of COVID when people, the great resignation, mm-hmm. people started, they had time to think, is this what I, what I really want? Well, we can have more balance in our lives and still hit those KPIs, the GP, gross profit. We can hit the bottom line performance. We can reinvest, take your people with you, health and well-being. It's critical. And that brings us neatly to our signature question, which is this. As a fellow well-being rebel, Philip, which I know you are, what is the one change that you'd like to see implemented in workplace well-being? 
it, it's actually a, an attention to the culture. It, and it's a, for me, it's a simple thing, but I'm connected to it. Edgar Sheen was the, who, who is not, not around anymore, but like the godfather of organizational culture. Mm-hmm. If you're not managing the culture, the culture will be managing you and you won't even be aware of it. Pay attention to the culture of your organization, be there two people or be there 2,000 people. It doesn't matter. But be having an HR department doesn't mean to say that you're connected to your culture. That's HR function and process, not cultural focus. It's a different thing altogether. Mm-hmm. So if there's one thing that you, if you're growing, if you're growing a business or you're in a, in a growth business as it currently stands, be, become more aware of how your culture ticks and start managing that. And there's no, there's no landing on that one. Once you start that process, it doesn't end until you either mm-hmm. sell the business or you die, but stay focused on your culture. In other words, culture, customers, cash flow, profit in that order. Culture always comes first because it delivers the service to the customer. It's not the other way around. Mm. And that's, that, that's, that's my finale. And I, well, it's the perfect way to end. And thank you so, so much. I love this discussion. It was fascinating. And I did tell you guys, he is a very interesting, very interesting person. So if you ever get the chance to meet Philippe Dyer, then make sure you do <laughs> buy him a, a cup of Cafe Nero coffee and he will tell you his interesting story, no doubt. <laughs> It'll cost you more than a cup of coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so, so much for joining us today, Philip. It's been an absolute insightful blast. It's been a pleasure and thank you for listening to my ramblings. It wasn't ramblings. They were words of wisdom. Pearls, I say, pearls. Pearls, thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Philip. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Wellbeing Rebellion. If you liked what you just heard, please share it with your colleagues, follow us on LinkedIn, the link will be in the show notes, and generally show us some love. We want to build a whole army of fellow rebels who want to create positive workplaces for everyone. Will you join the rebellion? See you next time.